Morning, everybody. And glad to see you. Thankful to have you uh, together with us this morning, worshiping the Lord at Downtown Prez. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jake Patton, and I'm one of the pastors here. That was Adam Radcliffe, who was leading us in the worship service this morning. And uh, we're both very glad to see you. Glad you're with us. Uh, if you have your Bibles uh, this morning, let's open to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing our study in Colossians. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got the text that we're going to use for you this morning printed in your bulletin. Uh, but before we jump in, uh, something that we try to do, a, a practice we try to employ with our preaching at Downtown Prez, it's no secret, we talk about this all the time, is to practice the art of being Christ-centered, having Christ-centered sermons. And what does that mean? Having a Christ-centered sermon, um, Spurgeon illustrates it the best. He says, when he was teaching his students and talking to other pastors, imagine any story of the Bible, Old Testament or New, and that story is like a road. And our job as pastors and ministers is to find out how this road takes us back to the metropolis that is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Every passage is a road, and every passage can get us back to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We didn't come up with Christ-centered preaching. Spurgeon didn't come up with Christ-centered preaching. Jesus did. That's how he preached. How the law, how the prophets were concerning him. And so that's how we do it. But sometimes, in all honesty, um, the text that we're, that we're looking at takes a lot of walking. And off in the distance, uh, we can see it, but it's dim. And it's just the silhouette. It's just the outline of the metropolis, this, this person, this work, who is Jesus Christ. We feel that way sometimes when we're in Leviticus. It's hard to get back to, to Christ in some ways. But this morning is the exact opposite. Now, from the beginning of this verse, we find ourselves and ourselves in no rural narrative, no rural story, no rural path. We are in the heart of Metropolis itself. We're on Main Street. And what we get to do this morning is just stand and look up in awe and in wonder of who Christ is and what he has done for the church. And we don't have to walk. We're already there. So with that in mind, let's look at Christ and his work together from Paul in, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Since the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You, O Lord, who are our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in the matchless name of Christ, our brother. Amen. Now, over the years, there has, there's been a number of products and a number of inventions that with them had a lot of hype. A lot of money went into it, a lot of marketing, a lot of talk, a lot of hype. I was reading an, ad, an article in a, in a business journal about some of these very, very wildly popular inventions that just couldn't live up to the hype. They never made it. Um, one from more recent history. You remember uh, Google Glass? It's like a smartphone for your face. Um, didn't live up to the hype, did it? It came and it went. It was supposed to be the next thing after the, uh, the iPhone. Um, for some of the uh, more older folks in the room, you remember uh, New Coke from the 80s? 1985, Coke decided it was going to scrap its old recipe, and they spent like $5 million on this like, national taste test, and everybody agreed that the new Coke tasted better than the old Coke, so they decided to roll out with this new product. But truth be told, it only lasted 78 days on the shelves. There was such an uproar and such an uprising. So they had to scrap it and they had to go back to the old recipe. Just a small $35 million mistake by, by Coke. No big deal. A lot of hype. A lot of money. It just couldn't live up to the hype. Uh, we could go on. Uh, we're already thinking of some in our own head. Segways were supposed to do to cars what cars did to the horse-drawn carriage or buggy. Right? It's supposed to revolutionize transportation. Uh, we don't use segways anymore. Right? Remember laser discs? Those were supposed to be the new thing, right? But those went away. What are all of these products that failed? What did they share in common? Right? They all had hype. They were all marketed heavily. They all had money behind them. Why did they fail? They just couldn't live up to the hype. They couldn't do what the marketers said it could do. They just couldn't live up to it. Now, we can, if we want, we can look at Colossians 1 in this same way. What Paul here is doing with the person and the work of Christ is, is, he, is he is putting his own marketing and his spin on who this man is and what he has done. And there's a lot of hype behind it. And so when we start to hear the things that we're about to hear regarding Jesus, who he is, and what he does, like the Colossians, what we have to ask ourselves is, is can Jesus really live up to what Paul says he can do? Can Jesus live up to this hype? Is he really who the gospel says he is? Um, and so I want to look at these together. My three points this morning, very simple, all with the letter P. It was accidental. I want to look at Christ's position. I want to look at his power and then his purpose. Christ's position his power, and his purpose. Well, first, uh, his position. Uh, I think it's fair to say that many of us here in this room, we have and we share a number of titles and a number of positions, more than just one. For example, on one hand, I am a son. I am the biological son of Bob and Jennifer Patton. 
But at the same time, I am also a father. I'm the father to Lacey, Luke, Aubrey, and Brooke. I am fully both, and I am fully both at the same time, just as some of you in this room are both a daughter and a mother. At the same time, one is not at the expense of the other. You are fully and fully both at all times. The way Paul introduces this man, Jesus Christ, the Savior of of the church, uh, to the Colossians is this way. He's saying, on one hand, we have a man, this manger-born, barn-dwelling, son of a carpenter, out of Nazareth. This man, this rabbi who taught for 33 years, is no mere man. At the very, very same time, he is, and look at verse 15 with me, he is the image of of the invisible God. So on one hand, he's a human just like you and me, but on the other hand, he's entirely different. He is God. He is the image of God himself in the flesh. And he's both. He's not one or the other. He's both. And we can sympathize. We know how that feels. That is his title. And and if that's true, if if what Paul says is true, is that this man who walked the earth for 33 years, it's also... God himself, that has cosmic implications. Cosmic implications. That must mean that this man, the son of Mary, is the heir. A couple things here. Look at verse 15. The second part of that verse, after the comma. Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. What does it mean to be the firstborn of all creation? If you're a first century Jew and you got married and you had one child and that child was a son... That child is your sole heir. That means when you die, your son, your child gets everything. Your livestock, your goods, your land, your home. One person gets everything. What Paul here is not trying to say is that Jesus is somehow a creation of God the Father. No, this is a title for Jesus. He is the firstborn, meaning what? That he is the heir. That Jesus gets or has all that God has. And what does God have? All of creation. If we could write up a deed, and the deed said, property, colon, everything that was, everything that is, everything we can see, everything we can't see, every galaxy, every molecule, the sole proprietor and owner of everything, all creation is one person. And at the bottom, the only name that is on that deed is Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn. He is the heir. He has inherited everything, seen and unseen, visible, invisible, large, small. That is his title. He is heir. Paul goes on. And there's there's many things we could talk about here, but we're only going to highlight three. Paul says not only is he the heir, but he's also the king. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What this does not mean is that Jesus won an election and he just happens to have just slightly more power or more authority than earthly authorities and earthly kings. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Not only does he have all authority and power, not only is he supreme, but the only reason why we and earthly powers have the power that they do is because Jesus gave it to them. 
And what do you call someone who has so much power, such supreme authority that he can actually give power away to other people? He can give it and he can take it away. Who do you call that person? You call him the king of kings, right? Because only the king of the kings could do that. Only the real and supreme king could give power away and take it from others. Paul says, this man who walked the earth for 33 years, he's, he's the king of kings. Not only does he own everything, but he's the king. Verse 18, Paul also calls him the beginning. Look at the second part of this verse, verse 18. He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that mean? Lazarus, um, who was Jesus' friend, was not the only man in the New Testament to die and to be brought back to life, to be resurrected. In a lot of ways, what happened to Jesus was very, very similar. They both died and they both came back to life. But there's a very, very important difference. Lazarus came back to life, which means what? That down the road, we don't know how, and we don't know how old he was, but Lazarus had to die again. Lazarus just came back to life. When Jesus died and when he was placed in the tomb, when he came back to life, he did not come back to life like Lazarus had it. He came back into what Paul calls here the resurrected life, the new life, the glorified life. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would call this body incorruptible. Right? Our bodies are corruptible. My knees are going out. I get tired easy. Our vision, we're starting to lose that. We're starting to lose our hearing. But this body that Jesus has, this new life that he is showing to all of creation is something new, something we haven't seen before, something entirely different than what happened to Lazarus. This body is incorruptible. This is new life. And so Paul calls him, he says, he's the beginning, the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead. Telling us that those who are in Christ, those that follow Christ, those who die with him will also be raised into these new bodies like him. Kind of pointing us to what our bodies and what life is going to look and be like. He gives us hints. So if you are a man, but at the same time you are the heir, you're the king of kings, you're the beginning, the firstborn over death, and then what that has to mean is that Jesus, this man, there's no going over his head, right? Sometimes if you're having a problem with your supervisor at work, what do you do? You go over his head. You go to your supervisor's supervisor. There is no going over Jesus' head. He has the pinnacle of positions. And he is in the pole position, and he holds that position alone. But we all know this. Position isn't everything, is it? Uh, you may have position, but that may not mean much. We're watching The Crown at our house, and I don't know all of the details, but, but this gets the point. Um, the UK has a queen. That's pretty high up. You don't get much higher in position than the queen, but does she have all of the power? Not necessarily, right? UK has a prime minister as well, what Paul is trying to communicate to us is not only does Jesus have the pinnacle of positions, but he also has all of the power, too. And he illustrates this in, in two ways. First, 
through creation. Look back at the first part of verse 16. Paul says that Jesus, this calloused-handed carpenter who shaped stone, who fashioned wood, verse 16, that by him all things were created. In other words, not only was he a carpenter on earth, but before we even understood what time was, just with his words, just with his whisper, just with the strike of his vocal cords, he caused everything we know and everything we see and everything we don't see into existence just by using his words. He spoke creation into existence. And what I suggest is that is a power that we as human beings cannot duplicate. And let me illustrate it this way. Here's the difference. There's a difference between creating and recreating. Only God can create. But what we can do is we can recreate. And, and here's, here's how I'll illustrate the difference. Imagine we have a BMW sitting right here in the middle of our sanctuary. That steel that makes up the body and that steel that was crafted to make the frame, like we took that steel out of the earth, we refined it, right? We shaped it, we formed it. And we put it inside of this car to make a masterpiece, right? And it's not just the steel. The leather, where did that come from? That hide had to be tanned, had to be treated, had to be stained. The wood on the trim inside, we had to cut that. We had to stain it. We had to polish it. Even the tires themselves, where did the tires come from? We had to take petroleum out of the ground and make tires. Did we create a BMW? Kind of. But here's the question for us. Where did that steel come from? We didn't make that. Where did that wood come from? Where did that leather come from? Where did that petroleum come from? God created that. He made that with just his word. So what have we done? We have taken what he has created and we've recreated it into magnificent things like BMWs, cars, buildings, Only God creates, but what we do is we recreate. And that's important because it reminds us of this great distinction. Although we have the power to recreate, there's only one person, Paul says, who has the supreme power to just use his words and just to speak things into existence. We've never been able to duplicate that, have we? We can't create out of nothing like Jesus did. He's separate. He's different than us. But not only is he the creator, he's also the preserver and the sustainer. It's one thing to create something, and it's another thing to preserve it. Remember the story of Frankenstein from high school? Dr. Frankenstein made a monster. He created a monster, but could he control it? No, he couldn't. But what Paul is saying here is is not only is Jesus the creator of all things, but he's the sustainer, the preserver of all things. You look outside, and it's a soggy, it's a gray morning, and Greenville is more like Brownville. Um, just not a lot of life in, in nature. But we don't dismay and we don't lose heart. Why? Because we know who the creator and the sustainer of the earth is. Jesus Christ. We know that in a couple months that things are going to green up. That blossoms are going to come back out. We're going to see flowers. We're going to see life again. Not because of Mother Nature, but because God has his hands like we sing in the song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's, he's created it, and now he's preserving it. It's the reason why we're not spinning off into orbit, out into space. Why? Because God has his hands on all of creation, creating and preserving. 
if you have the pinnacle of positions, if you are at the top, and if you have a power that is unmatched, like the power to create out of nothing, the power to preserve what you create, what that means is that you are troubled by nothing and you are threatened by no one. If you have all of the power and you have all the position, that means nothing troubles you. No one threatens you, right? That's who Jesus is. He has the highest of positions. And he himself contains all power. Now, when we start to talk about position, and when we talk about power, we start to get a little nervous and even scared, and we should be, right? What happens to people when they have position and when they have power? What do they typically do with it? They abuse it, don't they? We have an adage for this. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? It doesn't take long. Once someone is in position and they have all the power, they tend to use it poorly. It brings chaos and not peace. So the question for us this morning, if Jesus is who Paul says he is, if he has the highest position, if he has all the power, what is Jesus going to do with it? Is he going to be a tyrant like us? Is he going to use it for chaos or is he going to use it for relief? And Paul says he uses it for relief. And I want to look at this uh, in two ways. This is the last point, um, Christ's purpose. Imagine for a moment uh, you're in school and uh, um, your home class bell rings. It's 8 o'clock and you go sit down at your desk and your teacher says, first thing out of the bag, hey, just want you all to know, the principal uh, over the, the entire school is going to come sit in on our class all day. And there's an empty desk next to you, and you realize that the principal is coming to sit next to you. Um, or maybe you're in, um, you're in a business, and let's say this business is international. It's a big, large company. And without warning, you find out that the CEO is flying in, helicopters landing on the roof, and he's going to be shadowing you and your department all day, unannounced. Now, we're human beings, and if we're being honest, that scares the fool out of us when the boss shows up. When the boss comes close, that man who has position and that man who has power, that makes us very, very nervous. Why? Because we think he's coming to bring wrath. He's coming to shake things up. And we're scared. And what Paul says here is, yes, Jesus has position and he has power. But he's not coming to shake things up. He's not coming to bring chaos. He's coming to bring relief. And first, Paul talks about a relief through cleansing. Look at verse 20, the second part. Just this little phrase, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. This is what we call the atonement. And, you know, if you've been in church for a while, or maybe if you even haven't been in church, most people understand what the atonement is, which is we as human beings, when we show up, we show up at odds with God. And we do things that grieve him. We sin against him. And because of that, we deserve, and justly so, his wrath and punishment and death. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, what if I take the wrath that you deserve? I will take that punishment. And that's what Calvary is. God, pouring, the, God the Father pouring out his wrath, his retribution, satisfying his justice 
on Jesus, on the cross, on Calvary. That's why that event is so sobering and so brutal and so unfair. Jesus didn't deserve it. Why? So we could have the favor that he deserved in the Father's eyes. So that we could be looked upon as sons and daughters. So this enmity and this war that's between us and our Father, now we can have, as Paul says, we can have peace. Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. That's called the atonement. And I'll admit, up until this point, I've preached this passage several times before. I have stopped here with the good news. But the good news gets better. Have you ever thought about this? Why is, why is being clean so important? Why is there so much talk in the church and in Scripture about being cleansed, being whiter than snow? Why so much talk of cleansing? Think about it this way. Before you walk into a house, what do we all do? Don't we all scrape our feet on that welcome mat just outside the door? Why do we do that? Do we do that just because we like being clean? Or we like clean shoes? That may be part of it. But don't we scrape our shoes for the host? Don't we scrape our shoes for the inside of that house? Don't we scrape our shoes for the fellowship, the people that we're going to be with for their sake? Isn't that why we clean our shoes? What God says is, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And so before we come into this house of God, which contains many rooms, and at the door stands Jesus, we need new shoes. Why? Because God's a neat freak? Because we just like the feeling of being clean? No, it's because light and dark have no fellowship with one another. We have to be cleansed if we're going to be one, if we're going to share life, if we're going to be a people. A cleansing has to happen if there's going to be fellowship and oneness and unity. And I've missed that up until now, and I don't want you to miss it. Why does God want you to be clean? Why does he want me to be clean? Why does he want his people to be clean? It's not because he's a neat freak. It's, it's, it's because he wants to be one and have fellowship with you. This is what we call our doctrine, the union with Christ. In order to have union with Christ, in order to be one with him, there has to be a cleansing because light and dark don't mix. We have to be washed. And the good news of the gospel is that we are washed whiter than snow. I want to close with just a, a couple thoughts uh, this morning. A couple things. Some of us um, this morning need to hear um, Paul's challenge in verse 23. He charges the Colossians to continue in the faith, which means they've heard it. It implies they've already believed it, but something has come on the radar. Something's blipped. Something's leading them astray, a false doctrine of some kind. We don't know exactly what that is. So he doesn't say believe the faith. He says continue in the faith. Keep going. So we ask faith in what? What faith is he talking about? Because Jesus is the pinnacle of position and he has supreme power. How has he used his power? How has he used his privilege? He's used it to cleanse you and to bring you into fellowship with him, to make you one. In other words, that means that you cannot get technically any closer to Christ than you already are. You cannot get any more reconciled before God than you already are. You cannot get any more forgiven in Christ than you already are. He has already secured that. You are one. He is the head. You are the body. 
And in all of Paul's epistles, he uses this phrase or some version of it 143 times. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. When he dies, you die. When he is raised from the dead, you will raise, be raised from the dead. Where he goes, you will go. You are that one with him. And so to continue in the faith is to believe that, to act like it. See, that this, this truth to us tends to stay kind of psychological and philosophical. We kind of stick it in our, in our theological Rolodex and go, ah, union with Christ, I've heard about that. I know what that is. It's not meant to be philosophical. It's meant to be practical. It's meant to be embodied and lived out. And the Colossians weren't doing that. They were struggling. And, and so do we. And it looks like this in our life. It's that pet sin that you struggle with. And at some point, you start to ask yourself, um, you know, this isn't something I struggle with occasionally. I've, I've confessed this. I've, I've owned it. I've asked the Lord for, for health. And up until now, it feels like the answer has been no. I feel unclean. I don't feel like an outsider anymore. I, I, feel, I don't feel like an insider anymore. I'm starting to feel like an outsider. And when you start to think that, you start to believe that. And you start removing yourself from community group, from friendship, even from church. I didn't go so far as to say that you know, some of us this morning are listening to the podcast because we're, we're, we're so overburdened with guilt and shame, we couldn't bring ourselves to come this morning. And what Paul says is continue in the faith. Act as if you are one with Christ, that you have been cleansed and you've been forgiven, and to remove ourselves from the presence of God and from the presence of his people is not to continue in the faith, it's to deny it. It's to forget it. It's to sit at the feet and sit under the counsel of the evil one, not the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to say without using words, Christ, I don't think you're in any position nor do I think you have the power to cleanse me from my sin and to bring me into oneness with you and with your church. I just don't think you can pull it off. I think this gospel is hype. It's all talk. And then we start to act like it and recluse ourselves and isolate ourselves. And what Paul here is saying is continue in the faith. He has the position, he has the power to secure your cleansing, to make you one with him. You can't get any closer. Just act like it. And if you're listening, please let us see you next week. Don't remove yourself from his presence. Act like it's true. Ask the Lord to help you believe that it's true. He loves prayers like that. Will you believe? Will you continue in the faith? Don't listen to the evil one. Listen to Paul, listen to Jesus. He has the power he can cleanse and unite himself to you. For others, I want to focus on just the last few words of verse 23. Paul closes by saying, which I, Paul, became a minister. It wasn't that long ago in the gospel narrative that Paul, he was called Saul before his name changed. Saul uh, was, was met by Jesus face to face, the glorified Jesus, the Jesus with a new body. And Jesus appeared before Saul and asked him a question. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was a religious extremist. He was a terrorist. He was persecuting the early church. And right before um, this happens, this encounter between he and Jesus, 
Saul oversaw the, the stoning of Stephen. But notice what Jesus says, or what he asks. He doesn't ask, why are you persecuting Stephen? Why are you persecuting the church? What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? In other words, Jesus' reality is that he and Stephen are one. To mess with Stephen is to mess with Jesus. To mess with one of his saints is to mess with the supreme creator of all things. That's how one Jesus thinks he and Stephen and his church are. Not why are you persecuting Stephen. When you persecute him, you're persecuting me. This is between you and me, Saul. That's how one Christ thinks you, the church, and he truly is. And again, this was not that long ago. But now, how does Paul introduce himself in this passage? He's not a baby Christian. He's not a new convert. Who is he? Minister, elder, shepherd, captain who's helping advance this gospel, this kingdom of Jesus Christ. And here's the question for the rest of us this morning. If Christ the man, who is the pinnacle of positions and has supreme and ultimate power, if he will use that power to cleanse and unite himself to a worm and a thug like Saul, unite himself to Saul, not just declare a ceasefire, but unite himself with Saul forever, can he not do that for you? Can he not? It's not that Christ is unable, nor is it that Christ is unwilling. He is both able and willing to rescue, save, cleanse, and unite himself to you. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is believe. Would you consider that today if that's you? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the prayers that are all throughout Scripture. Sometimes they just give us words when it's hard to find words on our own. So grateful for the centurion who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, would you help take these truths that are so philosophical, that are in our head, and would they migrate into the very marrow of our souls? Would we not just know that we're cleansed? Would we not just understand or perceive that we have been united to you but we, would we truly believe it on our insides in, in ways that's just unexplainable to us would we feel forgiven would we feel and would we believe that we have been united to you not just in the afterlife but in the here and in the now would you come close would you give us more of your presence give us what you require give us belief for we ask In the matchless name of Christ, our brother, amen.